Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, and my British brother with a newish headset that I tell you, it's noise canceling, it's nasal blast canceling, it's making my ears happy. Is it making... Now, if you were to talk like a Muppet the whole time, that would be even better. Graham Goodwin, how are you, my friend? It's all good, my friend, and good evening from uh, what's been a very bright day here in uh, the southern part of the UK after just days and days and days and days of rain and wet husky and mud on the floors and God knows what else. Uh, But uh, bright sunshine today, still very cold, uh, but uh, looking forward, days ticking down now, to getting back on the great silver bird in the sky and uh, off to Super Sebring, but uh, actually have... A weekend of no racing this weekend for me. I'd love to hear you name check the very first male strip club you work, the Wet Husky. <laughs> so uh, that's a fairly fantastic start to the show. Well, speaking of start to the show, I think we're going to have to do this in a two-part recording fashion. Get the uh, get at least half in now, and then we'll probably have to come back a little bit later today because I have an interview that's been rescheduled four times. Uh, that I'm hoping goes off uh, in between our recording. So, with that said, as our official selector of the racing series categories, we begin with every week, what says you, Mr. Goodwin, and where we shall start this episode? We started last week with IMSA, didn't we? So I reckon we're by the process of convergence. And that's obviously going to be, a again, uh, a significant part of the show. Uh, let's go for with Weck, Aslam's, Elms and Akko, ACO Rules Racing. I'm so glad it's not called Pervergence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, granted, yeah, we'll that see. Could be another, that could be another tw- another twist word, couldn't it? Yeah, we'll see where this ends up with the rules that get announced at, at Sebring here. There may be some Pervergence in our Convergence. All right, time for me to fire the questions at you. We'll see which ones you duck and which ones you swing at. We're going to open with our pal, the creator of our favorite, our one and only fake sponsor (laughs) jingle for Bushu's Hammer Emporium, which we employ when a soapbox moment emerges. Andrew Baca, the Baxter, who asks Graham, has the ACO upstaged the W Series at their own game with the Lamont invite list? He says, on the same weekend, the W Series, that being the open wheel series with all female drivers, on the same weekend, the W Series visits Anderstorp in Sweden. At least seven women will race in the biggest race in the world at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. At least one of the women, Catherine Legg, may have skipped the W Series as a result of her Le Mans commitment. Hmm. That, as usual, it's for Mr. Baca, that's a, yeah. a well, well-sorted question. Had absolutely missed me. So well done, Andrew. Uh, had absolutely missed me. Well, I think it's not seven. I think it should be nine. I can't believe that Gear Racing and can, can present anything other than all female um, trio uh, with Christine Nielsen plus two. We're yet to find out exactly what is going to come out of that one. Um, but that's an incredibly good question because, of course, the W Series. Whatever you think of the W Series. Um, it's been well delivered. It's been well publicised, and uh, Jamie Chadwick uh, last time around, um, you know, getting plenty of plaudits and plenty of um, 
plenty of publicity on the back of that. It's good to see Jamie, by the way, out in their three Asia supporting our last two Asian Le Mans series races. Um, so that's going to be a very interesting choice, isn't it? If one or two of those ladies get a call to say, well, yeah, you could do a W Series that weekend, or would you like to come and share a Ferrari at the Le Mans 24 Hours? That could be a very interesting choice. You know, do you go through the series and try to win that, uh, which is supposed to be giving prominence to female talent in the sports, or do you do what you would hope that everybody's actually aiming for and go and race in one of the very biggest races that's available to those ladies, um, which is open competition, whether you be of the male or female persuasion. Um, so I think that's a very interesting question. We already know several of those names. We know the names aboard the uh, Iron Links Ferrari. We know the names aboard the Richard Mill Racing uh, Orica or Alpine. Um, we know one of the names aboard the gear racing car, but there are still two to come. That's a really very interesting question. Hadn't realised there was a, was that clash. Um, yeah, always presuming that that's uh, either one of the uh, the clashing events is one that survives the current uh, potential colon um, events uh, Europe wide. Indeed, uh, I need to pay better attention to schedules because these are things that we should know. I should know as well. Thank you again, Andrew, for having the eagle eye that we lack. We're going to go to Daniel Summers-Gill, who is a frequent submitter of questions, and thank you for that, Daniel. His first of two in a row. Why do the Mm. Porsche Works team's cars have to look so dull and (laughs) corporate-looking? Does the car sound great and the shape is good, but other than the pink pig and the Rothman cigarette livery at Le Mans 2018, I'll also throw in the factory Coca-Cola every last year oh, at yeah. Petit Le Mans. Uh, recent liveries have been so boring. He also adds the wins car looked awesome. Any insight on the, at least for Daniel's eyes, less enthralling approach to Porsche's factory liveries in the WAC? I think he's absolutely spot on. I'll be honest with you. We saw this through the uh, the era of the 919 hybrid. It carried on into the current era with the 911 RSRs. It does seem to me as if the box of crayons at the Porsche Design Centre is lacking some primary colours. Um, and all the liveries that both he and you name check are, of course, based on classic liveries for the most part with classic kind of commercial sponsors that are no longer in the sports uh, at that kind of level. So I think in part, it is a bit of a symptom of the fact that many of those sponsors have left the sport. Therefore their corporate colors have gone with them. Um, Kudos, huge kudos to Ben Keating and his, uh, his backers for what they've done with that uh, wins Ford and more recently, of course, with the wins Porsche. And that will continue uh, for the remainder of the season, I believe, with the WEC. But, yeah, I mean, there was that kind of internet theme, wasn't there, of uh, it's got to be black, white, uh, red and grey if you're going to be in the top class at Le Mans. And there was a degree of lack of inspiration amongst those cars. By far the best 919 liveries, by the way, was the year when we had the three cars, one in white, one in black, one in red. And they look great. Um, but, yeah, I'd like to see a bit more risk-taking. 
the the Porsche liveries, when you examine them, are full of quite clever stuff, but it's all a little bit introverted. It's all a little bit, you know, um, cliquey and yeah if you look carefully that's actually the porsche crest in red around the car and then we've got this bit of gray and if you look at it on the other car that bit's in black and not in gray it does i have to tell you not a great deal for me which is such a shame because the cars themselves are all sorts of awesome um i'd like to see a bit more risk taking whoever's doing the the retro livery stuff for porsche is doing a fantastic job whoever's doing the contemporary porsche livery i'm afraid needs to forget they're working for a company that loves their design and start thinking about the emotion that's involved in racing because i'm afraid it's rather badly lacking oh stay with daniel for one more who asks will there be a change in hashtag bo penis thank you daniel for using our one of our other one of our many official hashtags uh for the corvette c8r sebring he says there was something not right at the Cota, the Circuit of the Americas WEC round, as the Corvette ended up three laps down and didn't seem to do much wrong from what I saw. He says, I know they're not in the WEC full time, but it looks better if they're able to compete. Heard anything about that, or what What are your suspicions on what they might do based on Cota uh, results? Well, number one, they will be able to tell pretty clearly from the uh, the data they'll get from the car as to whether or not that was induced by any shortcoming in the car for whatever reason, whether or not there might have been a uh, a few bags of sand aboard, or whether or not the BOP was just wrong. And let's face it, that's exactly the reason why the Corvette is appearing in those two races, because what they're keen on finding is that they get to Le Mans in June, the first appearance, of course, of the C8R due uh, in June, and that we've not got that gaping chasm. You know, I think if we hadn't had the Cota race and we'd not got the Sebring appearance, then the best guesstimate might just have been that you got that at the test day and not before. And at that point, you're in a bit more of a world of pain. I would like to believe that they were trying as hard as they possibly could, no reason to think otherwise. Uh, I'd also like to believe that we will see a significant change, therefore, and that we can see the fabulous corvette running at least uh, in the ballpark with the uh, with the wc cohort of gt pros nothing in it for anybody as far as i'm concerned to have a serious player like corvette racing turn up uh, and try to do the best they possibly can to get a fair crack of the whip and then being uh, a, how can i put this unequalized out of it i'd like to think that wasn't on anybody's agenda yeah, that would be bad if it was. We need more <laughs> friends in the WEC, not fewer. Let's go to our pal George Algretza who asks, Graham, what's your bet or guess on engine specs for LMDH? It says EOT, BOP for whatever you got or something more restrictive? What? I think it's the I think it's the former. I think they will that they, that I think they'll be looking to set a kind of uh, ballpark and envelope, a performance envelope for engine power. But if you're looking to attract as wide a cohort, hello Rocky, uh, as wide <laughs> a cohort of uh, manufacturers as you possibly can, why would you make it difficult for them to come? Uh, at the moment, even within the 
three manufacturers you've got in the current DPI formula uh, in the Imsworth Exports Car Championship. Uh, there's three different solutions that have been applied there. It's doable. Um, a tiny little bit of a Twitter spat with somebody this evening. Um, you know, correctly, there was some cynicism about the ability of the powers that be to balance uh, performance of a, a varied, you know, um, rule book between the LMD, uh, LMDH and the LMHs, uh, Le Mans Hypercars, Le Mans Daytona H, whatever that's going to be. But we shouldn't forget that it's not that long ago. Husky. That, 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 indeed, that the very same uh, body of people managed to provide astonishing balance between three completely different 1,000-horsepower hybrid drivetrains and gave us some of the most awesome wheel-to-wheel racing we've seen in the top class of sports car racing in living memory. So let's hope they've just had a bit of an off half-decade uh, and actually what they've done is sharpened their pencils and got to grips with the fact that we've got a brave new world coming. I'd love to see a combination of screamers, rumblers, you know, uh, turbocharged this, supercharged that, normally aspirated the other, um, because what I think we've been lacking actually more recently in some of the GTLM battles is too many turbocharged V8s. I'm terribly sorry. It's a big turnoff for me. They might be the most efficient but um if you're standing trackside god they're boring stand up ferrari 488 for possibly the dullest engine notes in modern sports car racing and bmw for the oh god outer space alien strange vacuum cleaner well but how a non-diesel is so quiet that's that's it's phenomenal and yet from the in-car audio recordings that I've done with the BMW M8 GTE. It's loud and fascinating. Granted, that also comes as a byproduct of taking my audio recorders and positioning them within inches of the exhaust outlet. So we're getting as <laughs> loud as it can be. So, But if you're 20, 40, 50, 100 feet away, it's not a very loud or strong thing. But yes, uh, no argument there. Also worth noting that you just filed a story confirming the thing back in January when Convergence was announced. They really did not touch on in that announcement, but we flagged right away, which is great. But if this is going to be part of the FIA World Endurance Championship, the FIA is not mentioned as a signatory in any of this Convergence. The World Motorsports Council does indeed need to agree that convergence with a single class with different prototype formulas will be allowed into their WEC series. That has happened as well. It has. It's just that today in Geneva been agreed, uh, the general principles behind it. There's a few questions still outstanding. What might have to happen in terms of some tweaks to the Le Mans hypercar to get them into the correct performance uh, window, But the good news is we progress. We go on to the next stage, which is whatever we're going to hear and see um, at Sebring. And whilst I know there's some hopes that we might hear some more positivity from manufacturers, I hope we do. But my guess would be, and it is a guess, that for the most part that might come in June. 
uh, at the Le Mans 24 hours. I think that's when we might start to hear some really solid um, potential programs coming forward. But it is definitely a positive, uh, positive uh, way forward for the, uh, the championship. Uh, we now wait to hear the other part of the jigsaw, which is what is IMSA's uh, view going to be as to whether or not they will welcome either as full season entrance or I think more likely one-off entries for the uh, Blue Ribbon races, any of the hypercars. It would be great to see the likes of Tota, Jim Glickenhouse and that matter, um, getting an opportunity to see their fabulous beasts around the high bankings of Daytona. Fun times ahead, my friend. Uh, oh, yeah. Unfortunately, we've lost uh, the name of the person that sent this next question in. Uh, oh, dear. But it is flagged for you. For Gigi, I want to ask, with Jackie Heinricher's racing uh, goal of having an all-female squad to race at Le Mans, uh, how come nobody ever mentioned the all-female driver lineup that won the 1975 Le Mans edition in the 2.0 prototype class? It was a privateer squad called Societe Esso that ran three French rally drivers, with one being the legendary Michel Mouton, uh, Marianne Hefner, and Christine Dacremont. Why does nobody well, mention that? I have. Ever. <laughs> and, if, oh. and I think I think I might be wrong. Did we not broadcast the, um, the, the, the interview I did with Michel Mouton? We sure did. Paul Rickard? I think we did, didn't we, in Inside the Sports Car Paddock? And here's the thing, and with apologies for having missed your name off the, the list, I'll find that uh, back there and uh, say thank you in the appropriate manner. Um, Michelle didn't want to talk about it either. Her view was um, that uh, she wanted to celebrate the achievements of the current crop, and uh, we were talking just after she presented the trophy to uh, the three girls that last year were racing for Kessel Racing. This year it'll be Iron Lynx, um, and that uh, they just finished second in a pretty tightly fought GT uh, E class in the European Le Mans series at Paul Ricard. So no one's forgetting it. I know uh, the BBC took a bit of a blast um, on social media over the last week or so. Sophia Flersch had obviously had her people put something out talking about uh, her uh, part in what's going to be the Richard Mille Racing LMP2 efforts. And that had been translated, whether or not I've not seen the PR bit, but uh, either in the PR copy or in the BBC copy has been the first time we've had um, a uh, all-female squad at Le Mans. Of course it's not. And the, there was a figure, I think, given that it might be, it's, it's was it 30 that we've had down through the years because in the earlier years of Le Mans, it was not irregular to have uh, an all-female uh, squad, but it's certainly been less regular in, in recent years. But you're absolutely correct. It was not just an all-female squad. It was a class-winning all-female squad with um, what I think most of us would regard as being one of the very best female drivers in any form of motorsports. Michel Mouton uh, came very close to winning the World Rally Championship. And those that know, know that uh, people that are capable of winning the World Rally Championship should stand tall amongst the legions of drivers that should be regarded as the best of the best. Um, stand-up Walter Earl for another thing. Not a woman, but obviously very good. Um, but, yep, those uh, three ladies did indeed come home and win the two-litre class at Le Mans 24 hours. So um, completely correct that they should be recognised in exactly that way. But Michelle 
herself uh, is the person that was telling me, having asked exactly that question, that she'd rather be talked about 2019 as was, and 2020, I'm sure, would be no different. 45 years now on, of course, from uh, her class win. And I'm hoping we're going to see some spectacular performances from what I expect to be the nine ladies, at least, that will take to the track uh, in June. Throw in little random item that might amuse folks who love random items and factoids from motor I racing. Do. So the Iron Lynx, right? This is, I believe, an Italian team. Uh, it is. Yes. So granted, the Lynx name is certainly one that any team could use. Interesting to share that one of the first women to get involved and then find other women to get involved in forming a racing team here in the U S all female owned was done in the, what was that? That would have been the early 1990s. Uh, two women, one of them, Jackie Doty D O T Y, who, as I recall, is the heiress to Levi's, the, the gene oh, company, wow. uh, Jackie Doty, uh, was one, and uh, there are a couple other, couple of other women um, that were involved, but they formed Lynx Racing, L Y N X oh, wow. Racing, and it was not sports cars; it was open wheel. But this uh, this Lynx Racing team, uh, Dee Dee Rogers was her primary partner in that. Lynx Racing in the U.S. became one of the premier junior open wheel series, feeding drivers to IndyCar. Uh, one of them that folks know who also had a very successful sports car career, Mamo Gidley, uh, Buddy Rice, Indy 500 winner, Alex Barron, uh, done a lot in both uh, IndyCar and sports cars. Uh, many, 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 many drivers. Joey Hand, uh, a graduate of the Lynx racing team. Uh, so these two women, uh, really under coincidentally the same Lynx name, although this was not promoting female drivers at the time because admittedly in the early, throughout the 1990s, it was not something that was done as more than a gimmick. Uh, just, I guess, pure curiosity and, and pure random, random link here that we happen to have uh, the Lynx racing name attached uh, across decades and countries and borders that seem to be doing some pretty cool things related to women going forward in the old sport. Uh, let's go Thanks. to Claire McCann. Hi, Claire. Resend from last week. She says, I'm interested by the fact that an adapted car is a Garage 56 entry. This referring to Frederick Sosay's upcoming Lamar bid. He says, would a car with hand controls not be allowed to enter regular ACO competition? Or has the car been allowed as a Garage 56 entrant just as a way to get them into the race? He says, I realize, or she says, I realize it's a different sanctioning body, but did BMW need a rule exception to enter the 2018 Daytona 24 Hours with Alex Zanardi and his hand controls, or IMSA leading the way and opening the door for drivers with disabilities? So, some great stuff in here. Also, I guess okay. primarily the do you think we could take this out of Lamar conversation and say adapted cars, period? Let's go. Uh, we, I think we can. And number one, I think it was 2019, wasn't it, for Alex, not 2018? Yes. Um, so, uh, with apologies to the pedantry, um, I think the answer is 
they can choose what they like to put into Garage 56. Uh, can you race a car with hand controls within their rules? It's a great question. I'm not sure you can because the car is homologated with those controls. Am I right there, MP, do you think? Well, uh, keep in mind there's homologation, base yeah. homologation, and then there's often an annual rehomologation of a variety of things. It so could, there could potentially be a waiver as well. Well, yeah. So if you homologate your whichever car with Brembo as your brake partner and yep. decide for whatever reason the following year you want to go to PFC or some other brand, obviously you would need to submit that for approval. But those kinds of things happen every year. This, I would say, frankly, the braking uh, is really the, the only big addition that had to be done with the BMW that Alex and Artie drove, for example. Granted, steering wheel also had different functions to it, but at least for how they engineered Alex being in and out of the car, everything that he needed to use his hands only to pilot the car were optional items. When he went into the car, the, call it, standard steering wheel was popped off. His yep. custom steering wheel that provided throttle and shifts and different shifting location for his fingers and such that went on there was also a lever inserted something you if you've watched any drifting or rallying uh that was what he used to break the car with his right hand uh so but that did not force the other drivers to have to use that mechanism to brake. uh there was a standard brake pedal in position as well so what you ended up having were these items that were additive when he was in the car but not something that restricted the other drivers uh the fully able body drivers to use those items i would assume if this is something that uh frederick or any other driver who might want to compete uh, in an adapted car would do outside of le mans guarantee there would be the safety inspection right we want to make sure we can get you in and out of the car safely in case of an accident uh, but also just inspect the systems themselves to make sure that there's no, uh, there's nothing uh, that would be, say, an advantage. I mean, and this is very Alex specific, right? Not necessarily Frederick or any, you know, to any other driver, but without being you know, morose, Alex is obviously lacking a significant portion of the body he was born with from a weight standpoint. Uh, you could, in theory, have a situation that while he is in the car, compared to his teammates, there could be a concern of him running underweight so, and therefore yep. getting a just straight lap time competitive advantage. So it's having to think through some of these things on a case-by-case basis, but I'd have to believe that if a driver or drivers wanted to compete outside of Le Mans with an adapted car, homologating those items, Graham, would and should be more than possible. And the other items, as I said, based on the particular issue a driver might have to overcome, could be weighed and strategies applied to make sure that everything is you know, equal in a BOP or EOT type scenario uh, to keep other teams from complaining. Yeah, I mean, what we don't know yet, because we've not yet seen the car, they've not really had yet the, uh, 
the full rev, uh, you know, reveal of the program is just exactly what adaptations are going to need to be made to the Zero Seven for the three guys that will race at Le Mans. But uh, I think the as we discussed last week, MP, the point here is the innovation, if you like, is an entire team made up of um, of mobility impaired drivers and i think there's a bit of messaging here this is a bit of a show of diversity for the aco uh, in the same way as cl- pretty clearly and the, but there were some uh, statements made i seem to recall at the Mon either two or three years ago about the direct encouragement of getting more female drivers into endurance racing and to Le Mans. and what we're seeing from last year and now far more so this year is that being delivered upon uh, it is a huge platform for that sort of messaging. And the messaging I'm talking about here is not tokenism, as you discussed last week, MP, but the door is open. You are welcome. Please come. And um, I think there's been some real bravery in the past as far as um, disabled motorsports has been concerned. I was involved in... Um, you know, promotion of dis- disability uh, motorsport back in the early 90s when I worked for the UK's uh, sports minister and, in fact, one of the pioneers of that um, back in those days. Uh, we lost just a few weeks ago a uh, lady that uh, was very prominent in sprints and uh, and short, uh, short uh, racing here in the UK for many, many years. But... It, I think it's a worthy program. I think it'd be great to see how competitive the guys can actually be. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what needs to be done um, in a car that is far more difficult to adapt than a GT car or indeed an open-top prototype. Uh, there's not a lot of room in an Orica Zero 07. I can tell you that for nothing, as you know, the likes of you know the very tall Jack Manchester has found. That's why he drives a Delara. Uh, but... I think it's going to be a fascinating part of the the surrounding tale of the 2020 Le Mans 24 Hours. Um, you know what uh, what these guys can actually achieve, and by these guys, I don't just mean the drivers. I mean the engineering teams around motorsport that have been supporting this, not just for this year, but through these guys training in CN cars into LMP3 last year. And I hope we're going to hear a lot more about that drive to get more people uh, into more motorsport. We have a lot of it already, a lot of it already with the kind of recovery programs that are promoted both in the United States and here in the UK, Mission Motorsports um, here in the UK. And that's seen some, uh, some guys find real drive again after some massive challenges have been thrown at them uh, by life. And the fact that motorsport can be a part of the solution to that, I think, is fabulous. I'd like to see more of it with the uh, the Sose, La Filia Sose uh, at the Le Mans this year. Awesome. You know, we're going to go to an old friend of the show. And we haven't heard from this friend in a while. And it makes me incredibly happy to say thank you, Johannes Gallica, for sending in a oh, question, wow. right? It's been a while. And I mean, Johannes is honestly just a, uh, a person st- who has been on an unending stint of loving and supporting <laughs> sports car racing, endurance racing, 
and being a, a very valued participant on the good old book faces and social medias for posing questions and interacting. And uh, Johannes says, Graham, are hypercars dead on arrival? He says, if the current LMP1s are grandfathered back in, how many takers would there be? Also asks, should the ACO consider an interim year without an LMP1 class? Closes with saying, if LM, if IMSA's LMDH is a success, won't that also shoot down the GTE class? So three questions from Johannes. Okay, um, first things first, no, I don't think it's dead on arrival. Uh, it's been made very clear by Tota they will continue down that road. It's been made very clear by Jim Glickenhouse that he will be going down that road. And Jim, in fact, replying to a tweet I put out earlier today, saying that they will have an uh, announcement next week on their engine uh, program, which is very good news indeed. Um, but it's I completely understand, Johannes, why, uh, why you'd ask the question. We are going to be in a period where, in the WEC at least, we're going to have two parallel uh, rule sets that they're going to have to balance. I don't see that that should be terribly much of a problem. There's not a vast amount of difference in terms of the uh, the performance envelope between those two uh, forms of car. Do I think we're going to see anybody else rushing forward, signing up to hypercar? No. I think we've got what we've got. It's then a matter of how long those programs are going to be sustainable for. As to the net effects on GTE Pro and GTLM, completely correct again. Uh, I expect a range of things to happen, and I expect the majority of the current GTE manufacturers to, at the very least, seriously consider uh, moving to LMDH because, number one, I think they're going to find it cheaper if they can make those things visually relevant to their brand and compete for overall wins then that's ticking all the available boxes. The one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't give them an income stream to sell cars on to customer teams. But if you've got convergence behind, coming in behind for GT and you end up with something that looks remarkably like what we've currently got with GT3, then that box ends up being ticked as well. So I think the answer is the new world order, if things come together, and I think we'll know that within well, about three or four months, whether or not that's going to be sustainable, um, is a lot more cars in the top class uh, and a very different look to where we're going to be in GT land within half a decade. Let's go to another pal of the show, Stathis Kokorogiannis, and he throws in a couple questions. Just go with the lead one here, Stathis. It's a good one. Says, will the ACO, Graham, try and persuade Peugeot in opting for Le Mans hypercar instead of Le Mans Daytona Husky? Thing. <laughs> what do you think? And this is the question of leverage, right? The ACO um, needs, the ACO and WC needs Peugeot to go choose hypercar over LMDH. How hard do you think they would push? And how receptive do you think Peugeot might be? Um, we, we talked a little bit last week about the fact that Peugeot have already signed off budgets and have signed off budgets at the level of hypercar. However, that's not necessarily a guarantee 
that they will stay with that. But it is a reason why they might. Okay, um, so if they think there is a performance or a marketing advantage to going hypercar, that's what they can do within the budgets they have signed off. But I think there's common sense argument here to say that if there's a cheaper alternative that will keep them uh, with potential for overall wins, and particularly at Le Mans, then that makes it an easier question. Might they be pressured to go hypercar? I can't believe they would be, is the honest answer. Um, the only reason I think they might be is if LMDH falls flat. And, you know, all the indications appear to be that that's not likely to be the case. There we go. Rob Chalmers asks, do you know if the LMD Huskies will be full two-seaters or the one-and-a-half-seaters like current cars? I would say, Rob, what we will be staring at with lmdh is the exact thing we're staring at with dpi yeah just with more adventuresome bodywork and that doesn't mean radically different bodywork just more creative freedom for road car based styling it added in but we're not losing the lmp1 lmp2 style of presentation for those cars based on what we're told I- I think the answer, uh, the, the one reason I'll, I'll add a little bit of uh, caution here is it came from just an aside from Hugh Deshonak in an interview at Daytona where specifically asked about whether or not there was going to be any carryover from the Oracle 07. And the immediate answer came from Hugh and from his uh, technical director, David Fleury, that there will be a new safety cell for the Oracle LMDH. That means clearly they've got prior uh, notice of exactly what's going to be required. And that means something about the central structure of that car is going to have to be different, whether or not that's to do with some of the work that we know has been underway about protecting drivers in in kind of vertical impacts, whether or not that's to do with the dimensions of the tub. uh, I don't know, but just for what it's worth throwing that in there, there will not be the same kind of carryover as we had from the Oracle 05 to the 07, uh, with the same basic tub being as well the uh, Rebellion R13 and, you know, uh, for that matter, the prior car. The reality here is this is a completely different tub. It will be a new superstructure for the Oracle LMDH base. So quite exactly why, I don't know, but pretty clearly Oracle, and therefore you'd have to expect the other three chassis manufacturers are fully aware of what the basis is going to be of what they're expecting LMDH to become. Yeah. We'd just say that look for updated uh, as you, every time we have new safety, uh, tougher safety uh, impact testing measures to pass also would say that if we're talking strictly LMDH, uh, we will be needing to incorporate a hybrid system, hybrid kinetic energy recovery system for the first time. So would not be strange at all for the back of the tub uh, to be notched out uh, to fit a battery system uh, or to accommodate uh, hybrid componentry in some way, shape, or form. So all that I would say completely expected, but would not paint any expectations for the cars to look different uh, than the general LMP1, LMP2 style 
that we've had for many years. Uh, let's go to uh, Matt Hockey Hawkins 96 says, mm-hmm. so with the COVID-19 coronavirus causing issues in motorsport, what could happen with Le Mans? Postponement mm. until, say, September 20th or full cancellation. So we know this week, Graham, that there was, as I think with every motor racing series on the planet, some sort of official statement made <laughs> uh, as to what they're thinking, planning, or otherwise with the coronavirus. We know that our friends at Le Mans in the WC said, as many others have, monitoring it, checking with local authorities, will announce any changes if and when they're necessary. What comes to mind, though, if we do find ourselves in a place where 24 Hours of Le Mans might need to be rescheduled, certainly wouldn't be canceled, uh, knowing, do you think, Graham, that the shift in calendar, leaving the summer open uh, before the start of the new season, do you think that could be to their advantage if, indeed, whatever outbreak might uh, recede over that time period? What comes to mind? Well, I think there's uh, there's all sorts of possibilities here, are there? I think what's happening in the background now, there was a further statement, uh, by the way, in the World Motorsport Council communique this evening that talked about, you know, more than a watching brief and that, you know, if events have to be postponed and pushed back, then they will be. And that's across the whole of the FI world. I think what's happening now in the background, uh, notably with, I've got a number of queries out there with, a variety of major race organisers, none of which, by the way, is about COVID-19, but I've not had answers to any of them, and that's highly unusual. That tends to indicate they're extremely busy. Now, we know they're busy about things for convergence and and prior to uh, Sebring, but I suspect they're doing something which they've not been very good at doing in recent years, which is contingency planning. So I think what's happening at the moment is what's uh, happening is that if they are pushed to do what needs to be done, I'm not here just talking about them on, we'll come on to that in a moment, is they are looking as to where the uh, the wriggle room is going to be. There is August at the moment, um, pretty open. August is a problem in France. Everybody's on holiday. And uh, Le Mans in particular is an area not just where there's a lot of people that would go on holiday, but a lot of people come on holiday too as a gateway to the rather beautiful countryside around Le Mans. Uh, Le Mans also has Le Mans Classic in July. So if there needed to be a short-term postponement, there is an available slot just a few weeks later than the current plan where all the plans are already in place to use the full circuit anyway. So that's a less impactful postponement if there was a need for a short-term, very short-term postponement. But uh, what do I think is happening right now? I think there's a lot of number crunching going to be going on, um, talking about uh, where the wiggle room might be. The inevitability, though, is that if that starts to happen in a pretty concerted way, and I have to tell you, don't know about Le Mans, but as far as early season events in Europe are concerned, I expect that to be the case. Uh, in particular uh, in Italy um, at the moment, then uh, we are going to get to the stage where we're going to have to get used to one uh, of two or both things happening. One is massive fixture congestion in the latter part of the year. 
uh, or two, that some significant events might end up not being postponed but cancelled. Le Mans itself, I think, is a whole different kettle of fish, um, and clearly there'll be major consideration given there uh, around whether or not that's an event that you can draw the quarter of a million people or so that come to that great race. If in the emerging weeks we get to the stage where those numbers are escalating at the rate that they appear to be, then whether or not you or I uh, believe that the risks are there, the reality is it then becomes a matter of public policy and it might not be a matter of whether or not the ACO make that determination. It might be a matter of whether or not the French government make that determination. We're already in fairly extraordinary times in terms of some of the uh, efforts being made to stem that outbreak. Uh, we'll just have to see whether or not uh, governments take those decisions away from the sporting bodies. The moment, as I understand it, the major push is for restrictions on events that are in closed venues. Um, that's not the case, of course, with a motor racing venue, but we've already seen the first uh, events um, in Europe starting to be pushed back or uh, cancelled. The Rome Formula E Ypres has fallen so far. Um, we've had a Creventic event at Monza. I expect that there'll be other events at Monza that might find themselves in difficulties. It's a matter of whether or not we start to get more happening across the rest of Europe for starters. Um, I, I, this is going to be, I'm afraid, my patented um, hashtag wait and see, but I think that's all we can do right now. Um, it's not a very pleasant time to be taking responsibility for a major public event of any sort. We'll close on this, Graham, before we uh, hit the pause button on our recording, and I just I feel compelled to share this was discussing with my wife last night that I was looking the uh, Center for Disease Control, the uh, CDC website here in the U.S. That is our major national governmental-based agency that looks after such things. Hey again, Rocky. And the most recent annual data that they make available on their website is from uh, coming from the end of 2017. And I realize this is strictly about the U.S., so this is not global. In the U.S., uh, I, I apologize for forgetting the exact number of deaths in 2017 uh, from the flu, influenza, and pneumonia. But when I divided that number by 365 days of the year, it came out to about 152 deaths per day. Yeah. And... This is not to minimize the severity or potential severity of the coronavirus. What I shared with my wife was if we in the media, if those dastardly fake news people in the media, if the dastardly media folks highlighted the fact every day, if you turned on your favorite cable news channel, went to that website, picked up a newspaper, whatever it might be, and read on a daily basis, in the U.S. at least, 152 funerals were held today. And tomorrow, 152 funerals were held for folks that died from picking up what we'll call the common flu and its worst grade in pneumonia. And the next day, 152 and the next. Yep. And this was the incessant daily hammering through the media. I truly think the world would, at least the U.S., 
but likely the world would collapse. If the same level of hyper-focus, hyper-everything that is being applied to the coronavirus was actually that spotlight where we're talking about possibly single-digit deaths per day, uh, if that same hyper-focus and amplification of what has been happening for years upon years of 150-plus, again, just in the U.S., dying from a sim- a, an illness of the similar ilk of the coronavirus, if we shed the same spotlight, I don't think folks would ever leave the house. Uh, yep. Economies would crumble. Businesses would crumble. Reading about 130-plus billion dollars in airline and travel industry losses so far as a result yeah, we, of uh, the coronavirus in the recent weeks. Stock yeah, we lost an airline yesterday. Yes. We lost an airline yesterday in the UK. Stock markets up and down, uh, at least here in the US, where we are panic-driven. You, you go to the grocery store, water, all the bottled water is gone, and hand sanitizer. And this, right? Over one to two to three deaths per day here. Not the 152 that are still happening, but two or three. And I just find this is the thing that worries me the most, Graham. It's not the potential impact of the coronavirus as a scourge, as something that wipes out humanity. It is the willful, involuntary reaction to it for those who stay plugged into whatever media outlets or just have taken it upon themselves to believe the end times are here. And this is what frustrates me. So when we talk about and expect uh, to see um, more motor racing events canceled and so on and so forth, I absolutely do. I'm waiting to. I'm waiting for such things to happen here in the U.S., where more you know significant numbers across all forms of racing to be canceled, not a, as a result, Graham, of the coronavirus itself wreaking havoc on in an area where motor racing circuit A, B, or C is contained. But because people are so prone towards insane responses to this, that they will be canceled basic out of basic fear instead of actual yep. response to, and there's a massive outbreak in this area where the race is being held, therefore it's being canceled. Uh, that's the part that worries me and makes me worry about you and I, how we make a living how drivers make a living, teams make a living. And this is across everything. This isn't just stuck to sports, but uh, I'm not a big alarmist type guy, but I am very alarmed with how society in general has reacted to this and the knock-on effects it could have unless we collectively put this in its correct place. 152 funerals held every day in America from flu-related deaths. That isn't a thing that has tipped us into outright panic. And yet, a much smaller sample size of fatalities, all terrible, has? <sighs> Boy, I don't. Re- I, I, maybe that was a soapbox moment. It wasn't meant to be funny, so we're not going to play the jingle. But uh, this is just something where I'm watching this going, man, we as a people, we as a species, sure could do big harm to ourselves based on whether we want to employ rational thought or just be prone to fear and reactionary thinking. And we might be in a much, we're, we might be worse off 
based on how we react to the news and to this than the actual damage the virus itself will do. I, I could have one thing, by the way, to to that one. It's it's a pertinent point you said about the hand sanitizer and you know bottled water, toilet paper here in the UK is going to be said. But I do gather that Christoph Bouchou's hammer emporium still has plenty of hammers if that's what you need to deal with your crisis. Well, Mr. Goodwin, we're going to hit the pause. We will be back with, I don't know, you're going to pick the category when we do. So we will be back to you all momentarily. Graham Goodwin, we're back. It's like we didn't go anywhere, but we are indeed back. My dear Selecta, who in the intervening hour while I interviewed Robert Wickens, you managed to walk your lovely dog. And I I believe you have eradicated, I wasn't going to say world peace, world hunger. Um, That's gone. That's done. I'll check. Yep, still okay. Mightily effective. You know, what impresses me, though, you can solve world hunger in an hour. Yeah. Equivalence of technology, not a goddamn thing. <laughs> no, no, that's way too complicated, dear me. Well, um, it's <laughs> as my dear Selecta, where are we going next among our categories? You know what? I think we should mix it up. What? Let's, yeah, let's not let's, do We're going to do WEC again. We're going to answer the same that, questions. That, that would be fun. Uh, but let's uh, let's leave IMSA till the end. Let's, keep, let's keep our IMSA fans waiting let's go with fun that usually gets the roar end doesn't it let's go with fun i'm gonna leave that roar raw end <laughs> one all to you I there got, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna ask the uh the first one because it's it's <laughs> well there's an irony in me asking this question it's madam farrell and adam says he'd like to resubmit this one it's a lost in the hypercar special week can i suggest a new metric to go alongside the weekly hashtag wait and see counts, a count of how many times Gigi poses himself a question and answers it immediately. Does it happen a lot? Yes, it does. Do you want that to change? Absolutely, Absolutely not. not. <laughs> hashtag asked and answered. Love you both for the show. Oh, Adam. I, you know what? I think, I think this comes. Jen, it's a great question. It comes from. Where does this come um, from, Graham? It comes from uh, the very early days of be working with Malcolm Cracknell on Daily Sports Car. Malcolm had a particular style of writing, which I absolutely adored, and he had a particular way of dealing with the controversial subjects, uh, and that would be to leave an open question. It's an incredibly clever way of doing it when you think about it, because what you're asking your readers to do is to form their own conclusions, having laid out the evidence before them. Um, Uh, It is a thought process that I actually find really helpful. It's actually just question yourself, question others, leave the open question. It's also a very good way of getting information across and dealing with controversy is to ask a question and then provide your answer to that question. I don't do it consciously, and it is hilarious, and that is now going to be something that I probably consider more than I had previously. It's a bit like those, those little ticks those little habits we go into somebody pointed out must be 20 years ago that i overused the word actually and uh you when you start to listen to yourself they were absolutely right and now i barely use it at all but uh will i continue to uh pose these questions to myself i think i might absolutely (laughs) (laughs) and that's that's part of the fun here 
my friend, is that I, I love listeners like Adam who raise the fun, raise the peculiarities, and raise them in a way that is meant for laughter. Oh, yeah. And, that, and self-deprecation is a great thing as well. Look, I know I'm among the world's finest idiots. I take pride in this. <laughs> I love the fact that my listeners and readers just accept that they're going to engage in a lower grade of quality. It's truly appreciated. But I do appreciate folks like Adam, and thank you, Adam, because this kind of stuff, it's fun. Our peculiarities are on display every week, multiple hours to either pick at, right? Uh, I had someone, someone that listens to my... Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show sent me a direct message. Very simply, in the most basic of terms, complaining that I opened each show with about a 10, 15-minute monologue, news of the week, things happening on the home front, things of a personal nature or personal observations, and just hammered me over it and in no simple terms without saying it directly wanted me to shut up didn't care about me didn't care about my life didn't care about anything on the home front didn't care about anything just wanted me to start the show and get straight into the listener q a now was it was, was it chabral was it chabral commentating <sighs> It was Roger Penske, all right? I got I to gotta admit it. Uh, damn it, Roger. I mean, I thought we were closer than that, buddy. Um, but it was. It, it's one of those things where, and I, I'm sharing this not to be a jerk, hopefully, but so this listener, who apparently listens on a regular basis, dislikes the fact that I am not a completely empty vessel. And I didn't want to be a total jerk and say, hey, there, there's actually one weekly show uh, where the hosts have no personality. They also know absolutely nothing about the sport. But if you want to go and get something where the people speaking to you are just blurry blobs of nothingness and all you hear is questions and questions asked and answers provided and you're just in and out. There's that. I'm maybe not that guy. I don't assume people give a crap about what I have to say, but I do know that for me, my style, it would not make sense for me to just read words. Yes. What is this? Well, this is that. What happened here? This happened there. How many of these are there on a car? There are four. Uh, I think of this as more of a communal, a weekly communal meeting. It's a bit one way, got to admit, uh, but... That's how I think of this. So in that exchange of peculiarities or styles or whatever, it just left me saying, I don't know how to answer this. When you're telling the guy whose name is on the show, could you just be not there, please? Get right to the, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I don't know. I don't, it, uh, it's Adam, on the other hand, covers off the other aspect. And trust me, that's part, to me, it's part of the fun. We have so many little idiosyncrasies that we just accept. I accept, hey, man, it, it's part of the package. 
I I don't know. I probably should apologize for them more often, but just assume uh, folks have immunized themselves to uh, listening to my nonsense or watching it. And the same with you. So thanks, Adam. Uh, truly, this fu- I was looking forward to this question all week long. Um, <laughs> let's go to James Counter. Hey, James. Thank you as well for being a regular submitter of the questions. James says, you spoke previously about people taking the mick with interviews and editing transcripts. He says, the counter question, capital C, is who's the must helpful? I think you meant most, but you could say must. You could be editing your own transcript. Who is the most helpful emailing you with tip bits they forgot to mention, etc.? Thoughts and prayers, MP. Huh. What about you? Graham. I'm going to kick off not necessarily with one that emails you later with bits and pieces. There are people who do that, and that's that's very nice. But in terms of an interview that you always walk away from having got just more than you expected, even though because you've interviewed this guy more than once, your expectations are high, no question in my mind, Alex Zanardi. Mm. Um, absolutely amazing individual um i there are very few i could probably write down now a list in the 20 years or so that i've been doing this uh, the list of uh interviewees that i've really not enjoyed um and for the most part that would be entirely unfair there's not that many it's got to be said generally speaking i can find a, a level at which it actually works but uh zanardi absolutely is one of them um, I've had some really fun times with the likes of Tom Christensen, uh, Alan McNish, Jackie X, fantastic. To interview. I mean, I've, I've not done nearly enough with Jackie X or for that matter, Derek Bell. Both of those guys, absolutely open books and fabulous to spend time with them too. But um, there's so many, you know, from the very young guys coming into the sport who come in with, you know, eyes wide open without an attitude to it. Uh, ready to soak up all that can be thrown at it to the guys who are the absolute legends. Um, And you will always be surprised. If you open yourself up to this, you'll always be surprised. And, you know, there's just those moments when, um, you know, someone that you, you know, you know so well by reputation comes out with a response MP that you just weren't expecting. And, uh, just one that springs immediately to mind, and I think it says a lot about the man, which was uh, back in the day we used to do annual awards for Daily Sports Car, and Man of the Year for this particular year was Henri Pescarolo. It was uh, a vote, I think, at that time, partly to do with readers, partly to do with our contri- contributors, and um, I rang Henri to get some reaction to this, and he was... He was stunned. He was hmm. stunned and amazed. He said, but, but you know, but you're from the UK. You're from England. You know, this is a very French team. And I said, well, you know, it clearly, it was clear that Henri at that point in his life did not have a handle on how beloved his efforts at that time, almost last man standing against the Audi hordes, if you like, uh, how beloved that was, not just in his homeland, but across the whole world of motorsport, it is that 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 human side of things that that all oh, it never never fails to touch me. How did the uh, great Mister Pescarolo 
take the follow-up news that the uh, price for shipping and handling of the award was 10,000 francs. <laughs> oh, Dave, mate. But sorry. Not so happy. Um, I, 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 I'll throw in one, and maybe on the media side, since my comments last week were related to uh, racing series and communication side, Corvette Racing's main man, Ryan Smith, I have found to be just the the journalist's super extra quadruple pal, James. Ryan is someone who, if you say, hey, I need a couple minutes with so-and-so, or could you arrange that, whatever it is, can you help me with a quote for this thing? Not only does he get back to you immediately with that thing or with that help, but he's so thoughtful as someone who worked in the American Le Mans series for many years and its communications department writing not just press releases but session reports, having done our job. It's so great to have someone like Ryan where if I, again, ask for, hey, could you I need Tommy Milner for this thing, or could you, when you see him in the morning, could you grab a quick quote on this topic? And he'll not only do that, and I'm saying this, I'd normally get it myself, but obviously of late I haven't been traveling to the races. Not only will he help with that quote, but you'll then get an email, maybe in the same one or maybe something that follows soon after, of, hey, since you're writing about this topic, here's a couple little tidbits that maybe yeah. we you didn't know about or we haven't maybe written, or, hey, I got a couple quotes from other people similar to the thing you're asking for that, who knows, could be of value, I'll send those along as well. And it's that full picture mindedness that is so appreciated, Graham, because you have someone who's been in our shoes, knows deadlines, knows this, knows that, also knows we're, we're curious beings himself as well. So I've asked you a question on a topic. He then processes that whole thing and says, well, if I was doing that, what are some of the other things... I might want to fill in and boom, without asking, it's there. Uh, he did this today. <laughs> uh, he's at Circuit of the Americas for the uh, SRO GT World Challenge TC uh, GT4 TCA TCR TAGT uh, series <laughs> season debut sprint, sprint and text. shot me a yes, Sprint XYZ, shot me a text and said, hey, who do you guys have here covering the event? Because just got some quotes from this person that's a part of our General Motors racing family, and just want to make sure that I make those you know available to whomever who might be riding. It's like <laughs> that's awesome. It's just that, yep. that thoughtfulness. So uh, I'd give Ryan Smith a big thumbs up for what he does. He's not the only one. He just came to nope. mind first. I think that's a, that's a that's a good point and. There are two sorts of PR guy and lady, for that matter. Those that wait to be asked and those that come forward and offer. And, you know, it's not always the right time. It's not always appropriate, but the effort is always appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, please don't stop doing it just because I was grumpy that time. And, you know, James has uh, another question here. Uh, What's your favorite interview question? Oh, you want me, to, want me to throw one out while you think of yours? Go on, you go for it. Uh, it's a pretty simple one, James. If you were sentenced to death by overconsumption, 
<laughs> and had to choose between death by cheeseburger or death by blowjob. Which would you choose? It's one I've asked many times, and you'll get to hear again because I'm almost done editing season two of Who the Hell Are You? <laughs> on the Marshall Pro Podcast. So uh, that's my favorite interview question. Uh, it's not the most appropriate, but it is certainly my favorite. And the, the responses, oh, Will Power, IndyCar champion, 8500 winner, got mad, like mad at that question, which I couldn't understand. Uh, others just love it. Uh, Richard, uh, what did what did Elio Castroneves tell me? Kill me now, right? <laughs> I will tell you which one he chose, but uh, let's just say the coming from Brazil. Um, I think we can guess. You can <laughs> guess. Richard, West, Richard Westbrook's <laughs> response to that. I'm just telling you. Ah. Uh, there are some great ones in there. Remember, still available to download on the Marshall Pro Podcast. Uh, yeah, I still got to post them. But yeah, Wolfgang Monser, his oh. response to that question. Ah, oh, Mr. Two Questions, you got two choices. So that's my favorite, James. Not most appropriate, but definitely my favorite. How about you, Graham? Well, um, there's one that was in my mind. It's just gone flying straight out again. Uh, so was it the... Oh cunnilingus or cabbage death question is that your favorite one no no it wasn't that one it was oh good grief this is going to be a terrible pregnant pause when i actually try to remember what i was trying to remember as you asked that question as i'd like to tell my wife i forgot to remember (laughs) um well let's do this uh what else that's for the next one i'll come back to it yeah well we're back to james again he's he's our man he's our practitioner of fun which manufacturer needs to sign Shane Van Gisbergen for their LMDH program to pick up their Australian marketing? He says you're not allowed to choose a GM brand. That's a good question. So it needs to be Aussie-based, yes? Well, it it implies as such. Hmm. That's a tricky one. We'll go with a Nissan Bluebird. How's that? That would be my the choice. Nissan Bluebird. Yes. Why not? Uh, Tim Sane. We're running, we're running this one out of momentum here, aren't we? Well, I'm still trying to think of this. Yeah, we're, mo- we're just moving on. Uh, Tim Sane <laughs> says, Jake the Snake Roberts came back to pro wrestling in the AEW series. I realize you know nothing of which we're speaking here. Nothing. And delivered a hellacious promo. I actually watched this as a result of you mentioning it, Tim. He says, which retired sports car driver would be unsurprisingly quick um, were they to return for a one-off? Oh, and we got a ding. Someone had an oh, idea okay. come in, apparently. Oh, that's uh, that's uh, my wife saying that uh, when I come in, I might want to take the dog, uh, make see if the dog wants to pop out for a, I could put this a comfort break, and to remind me that the roofer is coming tomorrow because we lost part of our roof in the recent storm. So uh, uh, 8 a.m., brilliant. That's what that one was. Thanks, Trudy. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Trudy. You rock. Jeez. The first one that uh, came to mind, Tim, and it's just because we've spoken recently and I love him, uh, and he's just defies all expectations throughout his career, that'd be Perry McCarthy. I'd love mm-hmm. to see good old Pell back in some sort of prototype. Granted, I don't know how long he'd last since he smokes, um, but still, I'd love to see Pell. He just, that guy, 
he is he is magic sauce i need to post a uh podcast we recorded a couple years ago that was just all kinds of fun as well so uh all right i think you know marshall are we done with uh the fun category as a matter of fact we are sorry i opened it with posing a a question to myself and answering it here (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're 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 hegging the hegging around we're gonna give a heg so i've remembered now what the question was oh here you we go (laughs) it was a question i only asked it once and it went um and there's good reason for remembering this as anybody that reads dsc in the next couple of days will see uh i've only ever once and what i'm about to tell you will explain why uh conducted the press conference at a uh le mans series race or a wec race uh, and that came in 20, I want to say 2010 at the Hungara Ring. I did the um, both the qualifying and the race uh, press conference. Um, and as it turned out, that was a race of some great import in the history of the Le Mans series and indeed WC Beyond. Uh, and it was a question, um, the question that I asked during after, uh, the post-race press conference was to Danny Watts. Uh, because Danny and the Stracker Racing team uh, won the race overall in an LMB2 car. It's an extraordinary race. That, and this was, by the way, not against any small LMP1 opposition. There were multiple cars, including Rebellion and including an Orica Run Peugeot, beaten by no fewer than six LMP2 cars on that day. Danny had put the car on pole. And um, I conducted that press conference. He said, quite rightly, we're not, we're not going to be worried too much about uh, position overall. We're here for a championship. We're here to win the class. And uh, I'm afraid I took rather great advantage of that uh, to a somewhat exhausted Danny Watts uh, and introduced him uh, with the, uh, the opening question. Danny, before we start, uh, I think it's uh, probably only right that you apologise to everybody in here um, for that lie you told yesterday and the look of panic on Danny's face for quite some time until he realized I was indeed pulling his leg. And, uh, but it did knock him rather sideways. <laughs> and he, he said bad words to me afterwards. Can you believe that? Bad words. What? There wasn't a microphone in front. Yeah. But, uh, I was reasonably proud of that. So proud that the Le Mans series never, ever asked me again to do that. <laughs> That was the, that was the question I was I was searching for earlier. What I would hey, get what around. Yeah, what I'm hoping for was him coming up and not actually cursing at you, just squaring up to you and saying bad words, and then walking off. <laughs> that would have been no, excellent. no. He's uh, I could have put this more direct than that. Ah, <laughs> yes. Um, hey, General, first one up is from uh, one of my favorites, a guy in a grumpy bear suit. What? Jerusalem. With entry list done and dusted, have any GT3 cars lost their homologation under the new production count requirements? Here's a thing. Um, somewhere in the deep, dark depths of Daily Sports Cars publishing system is a story I wrote some months ago, which outlined with some details the, uh, the manufacturers that most certainly were not going to make the 20 cars in two years um, cut off for homologation and i have multiple times asked for clarification of that rule to find out exactly the answer to this question and answer has come none okay um i'm fully aware of which manufacturers 
were struggling to make that total. One of them most certainly was Nissan with GTR. Um, and I, outside of Japan, can think of precisely nil of those cars which are due to race this year uh, with KCMG apparently now parking their cars with uh, a Honda um, NSX as it's monikered in its home territory in Super Taikyu and with Porsche for their European and IGCC campaigns. The other one is Lexus, but the most certainly are Lexi um, campaigning in a couple of championships, including in the uh, GT World Challenge Europe. Keep on to remind, uh, remind myself of those words in that order. Uh, but certainly Lexus, I don't think you're even remotely close to the 20. I don't know what the official line is. And as soon as I get eyes on a person who I can corner in a paddock somewhere until they tell me, um, it's going to be difficult to give you a fulsome answer because I have politely asked that question. I think the first time I did so was in November at the very rainy um, FIA Motorsport Games where we did have most of the SRO guys there, but I don't have the answer immediately, but we will push and push hard for that. One next for you here, MP. It's about uh, Trans Am. It comes what? from Sputnik Gagarin at Sputnik G. Hey, Marshall, just started watching Trans Am this year. I watched the stream last weekend. Highly entertaining. Just wondering what freedoms or restrictions teams have in the TA class. Quite interesting. The answer is a lot. We Ooh. have the ability to make your own chassis. You can build your motors using production-based blocks or fully bespoke custom race engine blocks. Electronics ignition primarily is open. I mean, there are some restrictions as for what it can and can't do, but vendor choice is open there. Uh boy there's a lot there's a surprising amount these days that happens to be free you can even choose between running a flat bottom and getting a weight break or using a somewhat mild diffuser i think they allow it to rise something like four inches or so above the uh the the bottom the flat portion of the car uh so there's a fair amount of freedoms the body stuff, I believe, is more or less spec. You can pick between a variety of body styles, but uh, you're not allowed to do your own. I know that they've gone to you know, some control areas, and not necessarily you have one option, but just if you're going to use dampers, uh, you know that you're going to have... Well, you're going to use dampers, but... If you're deciding on what dampers you want to use, great, do that. Just know that I think they've capped uh, the individual price per damper at something in the $1,000 range, which is low. Uh, I believe they've done similar things on brakes to try and you know avoid, keep folks from spending zillions on such things where uh, potentially it could be done and significant advantages would be found. So... It's something that I, I'm, I'm really impressed with how open they have left the class. You can, indeed, and I think TA2 is very similar-minded. Uh, this is not a cookie-cutter thing. Come in, Everyone come and get your one chassis and your one engine and your one everything, and then just 
pick your body style and go. There's the genuine ability to kind of sort of make your own, build your own engine, to do all kinds of things. And I love that. That's the spirit of Trans Am with some modern, these are the areas we know folks could overspend that, well, they're going to get you a benefit. It's maybe not enough to let us keep this door totally open, so don't spend more than this amount or that amount. So for what I've read, uh, looking through the rule book, I'm very impressed with what you can do and the areas they've decided to push teams from exploring into grain. Yeah, it was good to see the live stream, by the way, last weekend. Uh, done clearly on a budget, but didn't suffer, I didn't think, much for that. And uh, look, to me, to be getting decent numbers as well. So that's good news uh, for a series that you and I have discussed. And I know you're a firm advocate of MP for quite some time in the weekend sports cars. And we carry on with William Matson. Uh, another Transam question. Uh, Ernie Francis Jr. mounting yet another title defence in TA1. Uh, uh, William thinks he's more than qualified to move to IMSA or NASCAR. Do you see that happening soon? Or is his career pretty much dead, ended in TA? Awesome question, William. He is someone who, through his Ford connections... I think got some laps in the Ford GT somewhere, I don't know, 2016, 2017, I believe at the Roar possibly. Uh, I could be mistaking that for maybe a private test, but I know that he was in and around that program um, in IMSA. He's a kid that just strikes me as a real young, talented gun. The air quote issue that I think might be going on here is he has Ford ties, but with the factory GTLM effort gone and you know, not really a factory factory presence in IMSA's Michelin Pilot Challenge Series, I don't see a lot of options in IMSA right now from a brand support, brand uh, promotion standpoint. We know what at Daytona Haley Deegan was in a car with I think someone else. So you know there was promotion going on there because she obviously is is generating a lot of interest. That was very much a marketing and promotions effort compared to young road racing talent uh, being moved into a road racing series. That's not her thing. That is an area William I'll admit that saddened me a little because I'm telling you. I think this Ernie Francis kid is fairly special. And those that race in the series who I know, who've raced against him, and are champions in endurance racing, have said that, hey, this kid is really freaking good. So, to your question of moving up to something, or his career is his career pretty much at a dead end, I think he might be in that weird place, William, where unless Ford out of nowhere and with nothing really to put him into on the endurance racing side. I'm wondering if he needs to consider courting another manufacturer, seeing if a Corvette racing, a Porsche, a whomever might be willing to throw him in a car and go test somewhere. Could that sever ties and whatever potential backing might be coming his way from Ford and Trans Am? And I don't know if there is. Sure, that that could jeopardize things in the short term. But he does seem stuck in a series where he's going to do very well, 
possibly, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll repeat as champion again. All these things are wonderful, but his talent is something that deserves consideration in GTLM, GTD. I wouldn't say prototypes just because we don't know. Uh, We haven't seen that evidence yet, but this is a kid who I think for every year, additional year he spends in Trans Am only, uh, we're being robbed of something pretty darn cool. Uh, could be interesting to see how he'd be ranked in the FIA or, or the EMSA ranking, couldn't it? There might well be a bit of an outlier uh, factor for Eddie Francis Jr. Certainly, you're absolutely right, a talent. Uh, staggeringly, the third question is also a Trans Am question. I thought it was Am Trans, a slightly yes, different series. <laughs> it comes from a different perspective, though, for Kevin Perez Frederico. Uh, from P, looking at the Trans Am series today, says Kevin, to be honest, he doesn't find the appeal for it. It's not like back in the 80s to 90s when they still had the factory support and big name drivers. It looks like a low tier ARCA racing series with better bodywork. Sure, the budget they run is more affordable in comparison to most series, but still pretty spec. For the same money, you could run the Formula Drift with an open rule book, which you have actual partner deals with aftermarket companies and OEMs to help fund or support your program. Hashtag me personally, if Trans Am wants to regain lost ground, why not use the old World Challenge rule set before the SRO takeover? Has more of a golden era feel of Trans Am back in the 60s and 70s, and it would be better to see teams building production-based race cars of a variety with more homegrown rule sets. Or maybe I just missed those days of WC before it got boring. So says Kevin, what's a UMP? I think you might just be missing those previous world challenge days kev i know you're a huge formula drift fan you send me stuff constantly about that um i don't think you were alive during the 80s or 90s to have seen trans am run so uh, but maybe you've watched a lot of stuff on youtube um i would say the thing the world does not need right now is another series with production-based gt cars we've we're we can barely get folks to care about the variety of series we have right now with them. So there's one sports car series that is totally different than all the others in North America. And that is Trans Am Uh, with tube. I realize that there are lower tier classes where production based GT three cars, et cetera, are allowed, but there's one formula that is different than every other. And I will always push back and rail at the idea of, so what should we do? Well, let's get rid of that and just go with yet another GT3 or GT4, GT5, GT2. Let's just go. There's one unicorn. Why do? Why would we consider killing it? Um, you got all those options in other series. Uh, Formula Drift, again, I know it is a popular thing for those who are involved in it. Uh, I've been a fan of it for a long time. It is complete underground racing culture. So for what Trans Am is now, it is by no means as strong as it once was. It's not at the weakest it's ever been, but it's weak if we're looking back 50 plus years. But it's building and growing, and it is gaining. So I'm... I would say let's not poop on what it is today, what it isn't today, knowing that it is indeed getting bigger and improving every year. Uh, as for factories and big name drivers, on the trajectory they're on, 
I'd say that seems like a reasonable thing to have come back in the next couple of years. So as long as it has owners that are motivated to try and restore its greatness, almost kind of along a make Trans Am great again thing. There's some red hats I believe you can buy. Um, We have the folks who own it, who love it, and want to make it what they saw it as back in the day. And so as long as they're making progress, I say let's support them, not tell them to just blend in with everyone else. Uh, I'm a Delta Wing guy. I'm a guy that, in the paddock full of homologated race cars, wants to go to the Delta Wing first to look at it and marvel at the different ideas and the fact that it is indeed the one toy on the Misfit Island. I appreciate the other spec GT this, LMP that's Appreciate all those as well. But same mindset here. Uh, we got one series that says, you know what, we're going tube frame, we're going cartoonish bodywork, we're just going, let's not be like everyone else. And so for hashtag me personally always going to be the guy that pushes pushes back and says hell no we're not joining everyone else when we have something that a is different but b it's really cool i I had one quick thing by the way from watching the the stream last weekend um i learned one thing from that and unfortunately it came at the expense of chris dyson who uh, retired from the race i was watching uh i think it was electrical problem i think he had electrical failure in the car but um it was when the door opened on the the uh, the the mustang isn't it interesting uh, yes tiny little kind of gold wing type door uh, effort on the side of the uh, mustang which is just not what i expected at all um but it, it, it for me difference good different is good and you know choose your weapons in terms of what's different but you know that old school feel to Trans Am, I think, has still got some real appeal. Um, and the fact that you, they can now mix it up with subclasses with the older GT3 cars, that as well I found interesting. And particularly at the end of the race, where I can't remember which driver it was in a uh, Porsche GT car got in amongst and the restarts um, the uh, the tube frame cars and stuck it on. Uh, one or two of them as well. I found that quite interesting as well. Um, I think it'd be good to see this one plays out over the full season with decent numbers um, in a grid there and with, you know, I hope an opportunity for more people to to learn more about it. Um, I'm delighted, by the way, we've had multiple questions about Transam. Doesn't that show one thing, MP, which actually giving people the opportunity to follow it easily and free brings with it an audience? And I can't believe that that's not the reason why we've got multiple questions and questions from different perspectives this week. Oh, I've just got a press release. Trans Am's video app's now been geo-blocked, so sorry. That's all gone. <laughs> um, no, it's a great point. It's a great point. I'm going to grab one here from Claire McCann. Thanks again for sending in another one, Claire. It says, when races are shown as a replay or on same-day delay, is there a reason that commercial breaks still cut out? two to three i'm sorry three to four minutes of the race why don't they pick up from where they left off before the commercials would say claire the very general answer to that is it's based often on the budget of the channel in question 
I know that, at least for some of my favorite stick and ball sports, if there's a great game, it will be replayed quickly on NBA, the NBA network or the NFL network or whatever. And they have the budget and the staff to make those quick edits so that when they have the, however long the game is, let's just say two and a half hour game is over, they will go in and quickly edit all of the commercial breaks out. uh, And sometimes we'll even go as far as cutting out uh, some of the long delays. If uh, there is a penalty of some sort and they want to go to instant replay and that replay ended up taking six minutes out of the game, there might not be a lot to learn during those six minutes, so the editors will just whack that part out. And so what you get is a replay that is faster-paced, obviously is not as long as the original uh, broadcast, and, again, is just delivered in a, we want to bring this to you and get it to you so you can just enjoy the, the pure competition. That's great for channels that have the money and the staff to do that. That's not always the case. So I know exactly what you're referring to here, and I've seen this happen as well with some races I've had to catch on uh, delay or otherwise, where you know you watch that replay and you're wondering, hey, uh, could you A, put the couple of minutes that were lost during a commercial back in, or just cut out that commercial, or in some cases, even worse, the we'll be right back or you know the the broadcast you're watching has gone to commercial and you just sit there staring at this bl- or you know this basic message on the screen for x amount of minutes you're going come on i realize you can fast forward or you know whatever but still you do just have some differences in budgets editing and willingness to either add in what was lost during the commercial or cut out that lost time that cut out that unnecessary commercial time to shorten things up uh, let's go. Go ahead. I, I, before you do that, I'm just going to add in something. It's apropos nothing, and it's not quite the answer to that question, but it's just to show that there are different ways of addressing some of those challenges. Uh, those of you that follow the Asia Le Mans series will possibly recall the extraordinary scenes we had before the start of the Sepang race that formed our penultimate round with a massive. Uh, electrical storm hitting the circuit and actually taking out most of our cameras one of the other things that storm took out was our central computer unit in the broadcast truck and indeed our main mode of recording and coordinating sound and what we found uh, when we were trying to do the highlights program was after about 45 minutes in our makeshift workaround which involved both commentators in a broom cupboard with a single microphone uh, as we've had on occasion with this podcast that this the sound quality started to degrade the solution was that i arrived a day earlier than i otherwise would for the final round in um in thailand and went to a hotel room where i re-recorded the entire four hour race wow. uh, from scratch so uh, on occasion you do get some pretty extreme workarounds but some magic there, magic done. And, but you're absolutely right. The, the overarching consideration here is budget. What, what equipment have you got? What time have you got? What resource have you got? What money have you got? And what can you achieve with that? And for the most part, when you look at what we used to have, 
you know, 10, 20 years ago, what we get now, our ability to follow the sports, whether or not you agree that the quality of broadcast is good, bad or indifferent, is immeasurably better than it ever has been before. I'm going to go to one from Josh Ridgen who says, resubmission from last week. He says, with KTM's entry to GT2 now official, Graham, are we expecting any more manufacturers soon, or is it only three? Also, where will GT2 be racing this season? It's a really good question, isn't it? We have seen the uh, the, the little uh, KTM. Although, oddly, not seen a front-end shot of it yet, which is rather odd. All the shots are kind of rear three-quarters or dead-on rear. Um, so with Absolutely. The um, Audi... The Porsche and the KTM to come. Um, I can tell you the, the tale of the McLaren, which was uh, they were looking into it. Uh, there might still be something coming uh, from McLaren, but I don't think it's going to come anytime soon. And it would certainly have to be a workaround another product you're soon to see from McLaren, not a race car. Uh, and others, Lamborghini have been uh, talked about as being potentially interested. AMG have been talked about as being potentially interested. Um, before we get into that, where will you see them racing? Definitely you'll see them racing in the GT Sports Club, which is the sub-world uh, challenge product. It's basically all gentlemen drivers, uh, and there is going to be a new product for that in North America, a new one in Asia. There's been a fairly long-standing one in Europe, and that will allow uh, the all gentlemen drivers to have. Effectively, I think it's, it's going to be a mixed grid of GT3, and gt2 cars i think in part therein lies the tale uh talking to my good friends at audi sports they tell me that something like 80 percent of the audi r8 lms gt2s that they have sold are not going to be raced anywhere they will be for collections or for track days etc etc an amazing looking car but what it is is an extreme track car you can race it, but you don't have to. I'm not sure there is enough opportunity for these cars to race yet for that marketplace to take the turn up. Um, there are those that I tend to listen to about the future of this marketplace that will tell you that what GT2 is, is Stefan Rattel's plan B, depending on what happens with GT3 budgets and depending on what happens with GT convergence that we believe is coming. I think they're right. And I think this is a longer game from Stefan. He doesn't tend on that kind of front to get it wrong very often. Um, there's still this oddity about GT2 and GT3 and where they sit in the performance window. But um, I'm not expecting to see terribly much more in that marketplace immediately. Uh, but I think the market will tell. And I know for a fact there are two or three manufacturers that have got a solution on the shelf ready to go if they think the market will support that product launch. There we go. Where are we headed next? Nick Dovniak. Hey, Nick. How do event sponsors feel about competing sponsoring cars, competing sponsors sponsoring cars, in their events, he says, for instance, Motul, are they cool with a Liqua Molly being in the field? Or is Total cool with a Castrol liveried car at an event they sponsor? As I know, the Rolex can at times be di- difficult to deal with where any entrant had to be cleared 
um, by them first. He says, I can't imagine they want to spend as much as they do to have a, a Richard meal car on pole. What have you heard about this? Uh, I can tell you that from an IndyCar standpoint, and I'm sharing this example, Graham, just because there's two options. We have Chevrolet that sponsor some events. They are a engine supplier. And we have Honda that sponsors some of the IndyCar events. And while they won't admit taking any extra uh, pride in winning one another's races, uh, boy, when the Chevy <laughs> folks win a Honda-sponsored race, man, those there's there's extra champagne flowing and vice versa. Uh, what do you know? What do you think on this end where competing brands may be event sponsor versus a car in the race with a livery for a competing brand? Um, I... Uh, in, in my kind of situation, both as a journalist and a broadcaster, there's been occasions when um, I've had quiet requests to tone down uh, mentions of even the colours of a car. So event sponsors um, that might be in the oil business, and you might have a car in a powder blue and orange livery that may may or may not feature um, a Gulf Oils livery, but they would politely request that you don't mention that. Um, there's there's all sorts of kind of pretty clever workarounds, one of which is what uh, happens at the Nürburgring 24 Hours, where Falcon tyres have been a long-term sponsor of that event, and therefore have stickers on all the cars, whether or not, and by the way, I believe the placement of that stickers is over the wheel arch, whether or not that car is carrying Falcon tyres. So I think that's pretty clever. Uh, it clearly costs them a pretty penny to do that. Uh, are there kind of um, contractual things in place? There absolutely are. Uh, those sponsors do like when they're naming sponsors for events, uh, those events to be given that full uh, title. Uh, indeed, I had a relatively polite email from one such sponsor this week uh, requesting that I change all our coverage to reflect the full sponsored name of a particular championship. I tend to have a policy that I'll be the judge of what actually a championship is actually described as unless and until that sponsor, frankly, is paying me money. Um, It's as simple as that. It's a commercial world. So do I particularly want to call something the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring brought to you by Fresh from Florida? No, it's the 12 Hours of Sebring. Um, I'll be respectful of the sponsorship uh, elements of a particular event or championship. And I'll make sure that it does get a mention. What I don't do is to mention it every single time, because to be blunt, it makes the the writing that I feel we're trying to do look a little bit ridiculous. So that's a great point. And I'll share a uh, Example that I know of how this went a little bit sideways, Nick, and it's not sports cars, unfortunately, but uh, it's IndyCar, and I know it because I've had the conversations. Um, There was a team at the Indianapolis 500 last year that added an additional car to their entry list, and it was sponsored by a new company selling a new brand of lubricant type stuff. And the team has a prime, well, one of their sponsors, that's everything from an associate sponsor to 
has been a primary sponsor in years past. It's on that car that this third entry, it's a straight-up oil company. So we have a situation where the driver brought a sponsor with a new product that's kind of oil lubricant related, but not truly. You would not think of as a direct competitor to the just straight up oil company that has been a longtime partner of the team and is actually on the very car being driven by this person at the 500. No issue. It's announced. Uh, this new sponsor does a deal with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as well to become their official, whatever it is. And so everything's good. Everything's great. Get to race week. And the longer term sponsor, the direct straight oil sponsor of the team says, hey, that other company on this car, they're competing with us and we don't like that to which the team says well guess we got to remove that from the car (laughs) after the deal's been signed after the thing's been announced after the car's been on track practicing after it's qualified for the 500 after the driver and crew have posed for photos for the official qualifying stuff after all the crew shirts and hero cards and everything else. So this is very much a case, Nick, of the total versus so-and-so type scenario, the Motul versus Liquamali and so on. Um, This one just struck me as a bit crazy, where in, I was about to say in theory and practice, Graham, knowing that, big high contributing long-term partner that is straight up oil producer and seller is possibly going to have a conflict with a one-off sponsor for one race in a extra entry that is in their same general you know ecosystem man wouldn't it be kind of smart to ask that question up front well that wasn't done (laughs) And I guess, again, for reasons I don't know, it took a little while for the major, you know, the the main sponsor to kind of perk their ears up and go, you know, maybe, frankly, someone from their marketing team just kind of Googled the other company's name that's on the car that they're also on and said, huh, um, this doesn't exactly add up. And so, lo and behold... (laughs) This new product, all the branding, all everything, ripped off the car from the race. Um, Haven't gone that far. And the person who is kind of in charge of all this on the team side, uh, he might not have been employed a whole lot longer. Um, It it wasn't directly after the Indy 500, but a couple months later, he was shown the door. So that's maybe the most recent incident I can think of, Nick, where, yeah, now, granted... As you mentioned, Motul, you know, Motul Petit Le Mans, for example, um, Liquid Molly being a sponsor of whichever team, well, that's great. If that's a Will Turner mobile, then you know what? That's Will Turner's mobile. A um, little bit different, though, if we're talking about within the same team having a primary sponsor, kind of, sort of, not comfortable with a, you know, hey, the, the, 
Coca-Cola Porsche team. Hey, guess what? We picked up Pepsi sponsorship for the weekend, too. Where do we put those logos? Uh, maybe that's not something you should do a lot of. Uh, let's see. Let me see if there are any other funds. Or no, we're in general. Sorry. We're done. I think we're done. I think we go to IMSA, and then I think we finish the show. Right. As well, you're creaky. We need some Liquamali. No, we don't. You we know do. what we really need? Justice Brothers, JB80. That's right, because there's no competition for our sponsor. (laughs) I'm raising my hand. We just won victory. Yay. Let's kick it off with Scott W. Cole. What U.S.-based team do you think would go to Bentley for a potential run in IMSA GTD in the future, if any? I I, I suspect the answer here is going to have to be it's a whimsical uh, one, this one, isn't it? No. Uh, I don't know if they're a dealer. They, I think they might be. Uh, I'd say Paul Miller. Could be wrong. Ooh. But, yeah, Paul Miller is a seller of many fine vehicles. Many, many dealerships. I think they might have a Bentley dealership. If not, it could be wrong. But, yeah, part of me, if if anyone, I would say... PMR are defending IMSA GTD champs with the Lamborghini Huracan GT3 Evo uh, would say that they are certainly one that jumps out as high performance, high achievement, and also one that is heavily connected on the automotive sales side. This would, of course, require, as we know, Graham Bentley to spend commit to up to a million dollars in marketing funds in order to participate in IMSA. We know this because they, Brian Gush, formerly has told us many, many times, we would love to be there. And there ain't no way we're paying a million bucks to do it. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, minus that somewhat insignificant seven-figure hurdle, Scott, uh, I bet you there'd be multiple Bentleys in the series right now. I t- you know what I would have loved to have seen? Um, back in that day, uh, back in the uh, Sean Heckman day, I would have loved to have seen um, the John Potter, Magnus Racing, uh, PR, Boondangle, uh, deal with the, how could I put this, the brand opportunities that Bentley actually provides that that's uh, that could have been quite fun um not dramatically unlinked to that this one comes from andrew baxter uh it is do you think imsa will change their small volume manufacturer rules to allow brands like scg or alpine to compete in lmdh or will some manufacturers be locked out it's a very good question there's another question by the way that we missed from the aco rules thing which talked about I think it was uh, from our good friend, uh, Right Turn Lover, asking about whether the small manufacturers that have got these licensing deals in LMP2 might be politely asked to switch their allegiances to LMDH. That's Aris and Alpine. The answer, of course, is yes, of course they would be. Whether or not they'll be in that league uh, remains to be seen. But what do you think about IMSA? I hope they do, by the way, change. Yeah, I share your hope. I do not share optimism though Mm -hmm. my guess is for the aurises 
and the Alpines and the whomevers, the SCGs, if they are going to be seen in IMSA races, it would be as hypercars that IMSA allows to compete in their series. I have heard, not claiming it as a fact, just claiming it as I've heard from smart people, that IMSA might be a little more betrothed to a higher volume number than our friends at the ACO or FIAWEC with their hypercars. So I think, I think we might hear at Sebring that, well, granted, I don't know if it would be Sebring. It might be Le Mans. Again, technical regs and homologation rules aren't, you know, I would think they would come at the same time, but again, who knows? But I won't be surprised. Maybe that's the way to put it. I will not be surprised, Baxter, if we learn that the pathway to becoming a manufacturer in hypercar versus LMDH is much easier for the low volume types. Even the, <laughs> I don't know how many limousines Oris, Oris makes per year. I truly don't. Is it five? Is it 500? I don't know, but I can't imagine it's a crazy number. Uh, same with Alpine. I don't know how many cars they make. But I They're just, doing pretty well. They're doing pretty well on numbers. Okay. I would just say that I won't be surprised if we learn that if you are genuinely building... Well, I should throw in one other little caveat. I don't know if we're talking total vehicles manufactured by a brand, right? As we've seen, yep. you know, just going back, Back in the day, you know, there's that famous photo of, what is it, 25 Porsche 917s lined mm-hmm. up. Uh, the homologation minimum had nothing to do with how many cars Porsche made as an auto manufacturer per year. It was this model that you want to come bring, you must make X amount. I'm not sure how this is going to be applied in terms of, okay, so auto manufacturer, you want to bring this model or this thing? Well, we need you to make a minimum of five SCG 007s uh, to therefore race a 007 hypercar? Or is it uh, you need to make a minimum of 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 overall vehicles a year to establish your brand as some sort of higher volume producer? And then that's all we care. If you satisfy that general number as a manufacturer, regardless of the individual models, that might be an easier one for some brands to satisfy. What I think, though, is we might end up learning, and I would not be surprised if Hypercar has a low number and LMDH might have a higher number that forces the SCGs and Alpines to do Hypercar or nothing else. That then begs the other question we're hoping to get answered, and I still think we might have what I'm not sure. Will IMSA just have complete open door to hypercar showing up at every round. So further clarification awaits. It's interesting times, isn't it? Couple more before we finish. Um, we've got one that is sort of, it's absolutely laser focused on what do you think of Garrett Grist? 
says David <laughs> Nicholas Tripp. Just a fun question, but what do you guys think of Garrick Rist? Seems to race in almost every LMP3 race, does well most of the time. Do you see him making a leap to LMP2 or potentially the top class of sports cars in the near future? Do you have a view on the Canadian yes. flag? Giga? Yes. Um, because I do, and I'm going to let you have a crack first. There, what do I think of Garrick Grist? Very simple. Terrible kisser. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I do not look forward to seeing him for that fact alone, David. Uh, so, yeah, actually, I like the kid. He's a scrappy little fella. Not the biggest guy in the world. Canadian as well. Hard to dislike a Canadian. That That's just scientifically he, proven. Is he Canadian? Because he, someone told me he wasn't. He's just got a Canadian license. Well, if he's got a document that says he is, that's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> this is a kid who spent a number of years on the American Junior Open Wheel Ladder, the road to Indy, trying to get to IndyCar. I think showed well. I know his father believed that there was immense talent that was not fully displayed. I would agree that I did not see the full demonstration of that talent. I don't really have an opinion on whether we're talking a future IndyCar champion who was never able to demonstrate that. I think the kid has talent. I would struggle to paint him as a future DPI LMP2 champion just because we need to see that, again, uh, shown. But he certainly has talent, and I am happiest, most of all, um, as for what do I think of him, I'm happy that he was not deterred by his road to Indy stall, uh, forcing him out of racing or giving up and just leading a normal life. I'm glad to see the kid is stuck with it, found opportunities in sports car racing, and does seem to have found a good little uh, a niche uh, for him here that would seem to be a perfect fit for LMP2. I know that Europe has been a place, Graham, where he has uh, really done the majority of his racing over the last couple of years, but would certainly welcome to see him back in North America. Uh, I'll add this. You're absolutely right. Doing an awful lot of racing in um, Impspirit Art Challenge as well as the European Le Mans series and indeed full season Asia Le Mans series and showed well there. And he's aligning himself with the right teams and the right drivers. I expect to hear good things about what Garrett will be doing within the next 12 months. I'll say just that for the moment. Um, I think that his pace has been good. The the racecraft in LMP3 tends to take a season or so to come. And we're seeing more and more of that now as things actually emerge. And... Uh, there is a bit of hashtag wait and see. Um, I think I'm aware of what the plan is going to be. And I think we'll know more about that in weeks and a small number of months rather than months and years. Uh, I hope that's right because I think he deserves a shot. Last one for this week's The Week in Sports Cars. And it's. Uh, let's go from, to. Can we use Joshua Ponce's? Because I love that one as the final I'll go for one. It. Um, Go for it. Joshua asks, would it be beneficial for IMSA to align their season? That's T-H-E-R-E. Go for the E-I-R. Align their season with the WEC for, we're going to go hashtag 
pervergence. Um, <laughs> would it be beneficial for IMSA to align their season with the WC4 convergence to be more coherent? Or do you think leaving it the way it is is the best? So I done thought about this, and I done thought about this, Joshua. And this is what I've come up with. If we have the FIAWEC starting their season in September, ending it in June, and going to all the great, I don't know, sound like a car was just powered by Taco Bell going by. If they go to all the great international destinations that we know of and love, including a stop or two here in America, and then we were to align IMSA's schedule, which is all North American, everything in the United States barring one stop in Canada, and start running that from September through June. And we know that convergence is intended to create the ability for privateers, manufacturers, those with hypercars, those with LMDHs to come together and race in one class at the same time, I would just have to ask if we align those calendars, wouldn't that make it hard if you had competing events going on at the same time since those calendars were aligned? (laughs) Um, I think think the the answer is here. In the spirit of convergence, we do need to find a way to make it easier for the teams and the manufacturers we're trying to attract to the sports to do as much as they possibly want to. I think beyond that, there is nothing wrong with the odd clash here and there uh, for you know the more mainstream races in both codes. But uh, for the big stuff, and particularly for the preparation for the big stuff, I think we we need to keep this momentum up. It's a good thing. It is a thing that I'm hoping people have learned that massive positivity has come from. Uh, if only publicly and the media so far, we're yet to see what emerges in the industry. But uh, I hope that the spirit of that, at the very least, carries through into what we see in the future. Whether or not that's avoiding clashes, whether or not that's a combined event somewhere, whatever that might be, I think that's momentum that's worth keeping. Absolutely. Just would suggest that creating an intentional clash by aligning both calendars would probably dissuade a lot of crossover and force teams, manufacturers, etc. to pick one event over the other. Uh, the At least as I envision things, Graham... Mm-hmm. We have a international traveling endurance championship in the WEC. We have a domestic non-traveling championship in IMSA. This is a pretty interesting difference in phenomena that allows those in the globe-trotting series to say hey they're in america you're an important market to us we're going to show up for a couple of the biggest events that do the most for our automotive brand promotionally or we're 
privateers, and this is a prestigious event we want to take part in. Vice versa. Hey, that Le Mans thing. Uh, we hear that's a good place to go. We want to go give that some love. Let's take our LMDHs there. And, again, maybe pick the brand. Would Acura want to take its cars to the Fuji round? Um, you know, we we have... At present, two Japanese manufacturers in Acura and Mazda. We have Cadillac. Cadillac trying to be more of a global brand. Could they enjoy going to whichever markets? Could it be a China? Could it be a wherever? I like the idea of having the same functioning calendars we have right now, Graham, which are a bit they're rotated on a different axis, which, of course, clashes could always be a thing, but by and large... Uh, we have a situation where, hey, we see value. We're going to sail over here. You see value. Come on over and play. And it's that. I would not expect any major, call it WEC manufacturers, uh, a Peugeot, to just say, we're going to go do America full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they introduce, come back to America here in 2026. Could that change? short? But at least in the short term. Uh, name some of the other well granted there aren't many brands um, but I don't foresee current DPI manufacturers who are going to build LMDH is saying see you later America uh, we're going over to the WEC full time or vice versa so with this these calendars that are a bit off axis you give those brands a chance to pick what they like go and do those things without jeopardizing their full season championship programs was that oh, a soapbox good. moment? I don't think so. That doesn't I, feel like a soapbox. We've not really had one this week. No, we? I th- Andrew, I apologize because you're getting huge royalties off it every time we play the thing. Um, free, free hammers for everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, you should go let the dog do li- lighten do. itself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do Yes. Uh, ballast reduction. Uh, go do dog right. ballast reduction. Uh, get ready for waking up and having Bushu's hand. Uh, now, see, I think we just found a reason. Q, Q. We're not. We're actually going to do it. We're not going to go the episode without a Q. Our sponsor jingle. Hammers for you. Hammers for me. Hammers for everyone. Christoph Bushu's hammer emporium. And we're back. Why did we play that? Well, Graham told us he's having folks coming in at 8 a.m. to repair yep. the roof. And where did they source their hammers? Damn it. Bushu's Hammer Emporium. We know this to be true. So there you go. We had to wait to the end. But dang it. We thank you, Andrew Back, for our phenomenal jingle for a sponsor that doesn't exist. How many shows can say that? Hell, this is a show that... Talent doesn't exist, so there are many things that are vaporware on the weekend sports cars. Brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my British brother, Graham Goodwin. Thank you, Graham, for being being a, not only a great friend, but really being a steady voice and a, I think a friendly, trusted voice in the world of sports car racing. I, I'm fully aware that when folks tune into this, they're coming here to get themselves some Graham Goodwin. They can get enough of my crap elsewhere. <laughs> ah, but oh, thank no, you no, for no, taking no, the no. time, my brother. 
always a pleasure uh, never a strain and now it's time to fill my last moments of the day watching a husky do something unmentionable and my first moments of tomorrow waking up to some guy who's going to overcharge me for putting a tile back on my roof uh, from me from you and with thanks as always to Cooper Tires and the fabulous people at the Justice Brothers this has been the Week in Sports Cards on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast we'll speak to you again next week <laughs>